put a person in the urgent care center, you come up with urgent care diagnoses. Would we say something bad about electronic records? Oh no! It was an embarrassment for emergency medicine, and it was by no means an exception. The last place I'm going to plead my case is in front of the family and the patient. Hey, Greg Henry, Rick Bicotta, coming to your Risk Management Monthly, May of 2012. Greg, where are we? Oh, Rick, we're sitting in this lavish suite you have here, and uh, we're in New Orleans. New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans. And we're going to be uh, we're going to be enjoying Bob Cowsill tomorrow night. At, at uh, he's you know the Cowsills are back playing again. This is good. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're at the uh, EMA course here, and there's about 140 nice folks participating. We got Mike Heller as faculty, and uh, you and Billy Mallon, and we're having a good time. Um, but it is time to do risk management monthly. We got a. A little potpourri, as they would say, of stuff for you this month. Yeah, and that means we don't have anybody to interview. That's what that actually means, Rick. <laughs> no, we could have done that. There's we could have done down that. There. Yeah, yeah. But Greg's got something he'd like to start off with. Newsflash. Newsflash. Uh, the federal government, always in an attempt to help us out, <clears throat> which means they want more cash and revenue, is now starting to enforce something that was actually passed several years ago, but they had to implement it and get it going, and it's called MSAs. This is Medicare slash Medicaid uh, set-aside accounts. Now you're asking yourself, Rick, what are those set-aside accounts? Greg, what are those set-aside accounts? Well, I'm glad you ask. What actually is happening here is anytime there's a lawsuit and there is a third party involved, i.e., uh, payment, which is almost every case. How many people pay cash at the emergency department? All right. So now they've sent a bill to Medicare or Medicaid. Now what's happened is they're doing the same things that the private insurers are. We now in some of the states have private insurers going down to the courthouse. They look at every filing and see if they paid money. Because if they paid money not just for the emergency care, but the subsequent medical care, which was the result of negligent malpractice, if there's any money change hands at court, you know, there's a decision or there's a settlement, they want to be there to get a share of the money. So what's happening? And let me just review a couple of these because I've been involved with them recently. The feds have been directed, and there's a three-month phase-in of this, it's coming up by August. It'll be uh, completely phased in. Every time there's a lawsuit, they're going to look and see, and if they can sit at the table, and this is what is really amazing, is you have to put set-aside money, i.e., if the, the finding is that you're negligent, they've got an outside service that you can deal with that will calculate how much money over the next 20 years Medicaid's going to have to spend on that patient. And so what they do is they calculate this up and come up with an amount of money. What does this really mean? That means the settlements are going to be more expensive. The, the defense is going to have to put aside more money in all of these cases. This could be, quite frankly, a disaster for us 
And now that the feds have gotten involved, um, it's not going to go in any direction um, that we want. As far as I'm concerned, whenever they say, hello, I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help, they're wrong. Well, you know, why, why is it limited to the federal government? I uh, am aware of a case where a um, young girl had a cellulitis. It really turned out to be a necrotizing fasciitis. She was sent to another hospital after the, the diagnosis was delayed at the first hospital and was in the ICU for a protracted period of time. And it would seem to me that the insurance company um, that paid for that bill would come back and say, hey, if you had diagnosed this in a proper time frame, uh, we would not have had to pay this $100,000 bill. So we're going after you for malpractice, and you're causing us money. It's the same thing. But I've not seen that occur. Well, it actually has happened in a few cases. But the thing that makes the federal process different is that they're getting studies done now down the road. What are they going to pay for? It's not just the bills that have just been incurred. They're talking about the future health care. I have just been involved in the settlement of a case where this woman's uh, uh, MI was misdiagnosed. So now, as part of the care down the road she's also had involved some of the conduction bundles she's going to need an implantable uh, device to to handle it in case she uh, uh, goes into fibrillation that sort of thing they even calculated if she lives this long and she has to have another device that's another 50,000 bucks so when they when the people from uh, medicare came uh, came to the table medicare medicare correct uh, came to the table, what they said was, here's the projection that we got from our experts as to what the, not just these bills, mm-hmm. the future health care on this woman, they calculate how long she lives and they say, this is going to be what we want set aside to cover those bills. Now, most people have complex health problems. This woman was also depressed. She was a smoker. She had hypertension. Do we have to figure and all those bills, too? Well, listen, part of the discussion was what was the actual amount of money which was related to the malpractice in this case? Let me just tell you, these are complex, and all I can see is more difficulty in solving these problems. Well, on that bright note. (laughs) Sorry about that, right? This is great. I'm sorry. Didn't Uh, mean to bring that up. How about a case? Okay. A case? Let me see. Let me get my case here. Um, Primary care physician saw a mailman in his office, and uh, there was some weakness, numbness, and tingling in the Is that opposed to a female man? (laughs) Yeah, this is a male man, though. This is a male, male man. Okay. Uh, Tingling in the right hand. Uh, The primary care physician was concerned that maybe he was having a TIA or stroke or something like that, so he faxed a note to the emergency department, specifically requesting a head CT and carotid ultrasound. Well, let's stop there. Because how often do you get people being sent in by their primary care doctor with a note saying, uh, rule out appendicitis or do this, do that, do this, do that. And uh, you examine the patient and say, this person doesn't have any appendicitis. Well, I don't think you're under any obligation to do testing that's inappropriate. I think the obligation, though, is to call the doc who sent him in and say, you know, John, I've kind of looked at your patient. Here's another way to go on this. This is the way they are right now. Why don't we do X, Y, or Z? 
you have no obligation to put the patient at risk, which some of our testing does. You have no obligation to spend monies that that are uh, irrationally done. But you do have an obligation, I think, to contact this physician and say, hey, what's going on here? I think you're viewing it differently than I am. This is what I think ought to be done. Well, good explanation, Greg, because that comes up all the time, and physicians are in a quandary over, well, what do I do here? You see, I don't think what they want, I don't think they want a test, because they can send people over for a test. They don't need us. You know, the last time I checked, every doc had the ability to order a CT scan, to order a white blood count. You don't need me to do that for you. That's the desk secretary's job. What you wanted, and I believe that's what the doctor wanted in this case, he wanted an opinion as to, as to what, how the patient's doing and what we ought to do now. Well, I think it was a little bit more than opinion. He said, I would like these two tests to be done. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's move on. And by the way, he's requested the wrong test. Uh, if you think the patient is currently having a stroke in front of you, and it's recent onset within the last few hours, the CT scan doesn't rule in or rule out a stroke. I, I hope we don't have anybody listening to Risk, Manage, Risk Management Monthly. And we have a very sophisticated crowd, Rick. None of these people believe that a CT rules in or rules out a stroke. Well, in any case, in any case, this guy faxes a note to the uh, ER that is put onto the chart by a what's called a quick-look nurse mm-hmm. who sent him into the regular ER instead of the urgent care center. That was cool. The ED, true ED triage nurse, however, was not impressed by the person's findings and um, thought, no, nah, this is probably a repetitive movement disorder. Yes, yeah, sure. And sends him back over to the urgent care center side. Well, I have a sort of repetitive movement disorder, which we don't have to get into in this tape. But the bottom line is... Whether the nurse thought it was uh, repetitive uh, movement disorder, whether she thought it was this, that, or another thing, why in the world could you ignore the request or at least the suspicion of the outside doc? I think you at least have to deal with the outside doc on what he thought was going on. Well, obviously, this nurse is going to get his or her hand slapped at the end of this thing. (laughs) Yes, no, I kind of got that idea, Rick. All right. Um so the urgent care doctor uh, diagnoses carpal tunnel syndrome, and uh, he, he said he didn't, never saw the facts. And one of the things that comes up in these cases is you put a person in the urgent care center, you come up with urgent care diagnoses. You put a person in the ER, you're going to be more likely to come up with you know, more significant diagnoses. There's clearly a prejudice about where these people are in terms of what you think's wrong with them. Yeah, George Bernard Shaw in the doctor's dilemma said, uh, uh, if you go to a general surgeon, he'll cut your leg off. I think we are, each one of us as a doc, believes that people have what we treat. If we go to an urgent care center or we send the patient there, everyone there believes they have an urgent care problem and not something else. And that's that's deadly. I mean, I've, I've worked urgent care. When somebody said, would you just look at this young guy with some, some neck pain? And I think he got, you know, pulled his neck while he was working at work. No, he had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And it was straightforward, not a problem once I saw him. 
But it was a young guy who presented to the nurse out front. We were very busy. The emergency side probably had 30 or 40 people waiting, and they just said, send him over to urgent care. They'll take care of it. Well, anyway, by the time the primary physician called in to check on his patient, how's he doing kind of thing, the patient had already been discharged. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's not good because you didn't even call to tell the primary care doctor what you did. But, in fact, this is because the facts was not seen by the doctor who took care of them. What you're saying is that that diagnosis of carpal tunnel should have been terminal carpal tunnel. (laughs) Yes. It's turning out that way. So... A seat, the, the patient was called back. Come back to the ER. We, 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 we had some confusion. We got to check you out here. Yeah. A CT was negative, but it was after hours and a carotid ultrasound couldn't be obtained. Of course not. A hospitalist who was supposed to be uh, admitting the patient never showed up. So ultimately, the patient signed out, uh, and the AMA process was not completed. He said, see you around. I got, I, I got to get out of here. Let's stop. Stop. For all the listeners... The patient got tired of waiting and wanted to get out of there. But there was no effort by anybody to say, listen, we're admitting you. I mean, there are two big errors here, Rick. Why did this guy who says he's admitting the patient never show up? Number two, if a patient wants to leave, that should be a red flag to everybody who's listened to Risk Management Monthly that, you know what, you better document that this you were the patient was given advice or best advice and decided to hightail it out and you need to document those things on the chart so the guy leaves and uh, the uh, ER doc says listen uh, call your doctor in the morning get yourself an appointment to be uh, uh, rechecked in the morning but again no formal discharge uh, was taking place the next morning the patient calls the uh, primary care doctor's office for an appointment and the nurse says, uh, the doctor wants you to go see a neurologist. And, uh, of course, there's no appointment arranged for the neurologist. And the patient has a stroke that afternoon due to a left carotid artery plaque. And <gasps> when, when all was said and done, uh, $1.123 million was exchanged hands here. The triage nurse, of course, an employee of the hospital, was found culpable, as was the urgent care doctor. Uh, the emergency physician got off despite not doing a proper AMA discharge. That's on the second visit, obviously. Yeah. So this is a basically a combination <clears throat> of poor communication, which the Joint Commission has really got to be up its butt about in terms of these pass-ons and, and, and communication in general. Yep. And poor clinical judgment, a deadly combination. Yes, it, it certainly is. You know, I sat on the... Uh, on the PTAC for for uh, the Joint Commission for eight years. I certainly don't agree with everything the Joint Commission does, but on this communication basis, on this case, there were two or three people involved who should have known better. How are you going to let this guy get out against medical advice without something being put down? How in the world are you going to let this emergency doc get away, or the urgent care doc say, this is carpal tunnel syndrome uh i mean carpal tunnel has positive findings it ought to have tunnel's sign you ought to be able to reproduce it with various maneuvers come on i think i think this is this is weak medically rick well this we were talking about this offline about if you're sent to the urgent care center you get urgent care diagnoses 
Right. And if you're and um, we have a nice paper in the abstracts way, 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 way back that looked at chest pain. And uh, chest pain in a family doctor's office is more likely to be GERD. Chest pain in an emergency department is more likely to be acute coronary syndrome. These are not the same patients. Yeah, no, they're they're really not. And and I think that uh, you're still obligated to do the the standard exam. And I it's very unfortunate that the doc on the outside who initially saw the patient couldn't have spoken to that physician and say, here are my concerns. This is what we saw. Yeah. Faxing in your concerns is kind of like, ah, geez, come on, give me a break. You could make a phone call. Yeah, you could do something. And you could kind of understand why the family would be, again, I'm not an apologist for families, and most of my time is spent defending doctors. But I understand why people would be unhappy if that was my brother that this happened to. Sure. I'd be an unhappy guy. It's not where it ought to be. You want another one? Yeah, sure. This is a quickie. A foster mother brought one of her charges to a hospital clinic. Two physicians saw bruises and suspected child abuse, and a medical assistant was asked to report the case as suspected abuse and mail in the official paperwork. But it never happened. Ten days later, the kid was brought back to the same clinic, and the bruises were again noted, but no action was taken on the assumption that uh, a report had been filed. Two days later, the child was beaten to death in the foster home. The child's natural parents sued and got $630,000 from the foster care agency. They were, they were bad parents in the first place. Yeah, they, they, they yes, paid it, off, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. Bad parenting pays off. Um, and it turns out that the foster mother was a felon. You know, details, details. Yeah. You know, come on, every, everybody yep. deserves a second chance. You know, a lot of states have had this problem. There are wonderful people who sign up to be foster parents, no question. There's also people who are working that system to get so much money per kid, and they really don't care quite how they treat those children. And and it's unfortunate. The sta- By the way, I'm sure the state didn't go after itself for bad decision-making. You know, whenever you see these things, if, if I'm concerned about child abuse, not just neglect, but abuse, this is, this is a kid who's been hit. They've got bruises. I think I'd have Child Protective Services see that case that night. And you can arrange, I think, in all 50 states, when you honestly believe a child is in danger, you can have the child taken out of the home. Well, both of the family physicians were also sued, and they settled for uh, $200,000. And the bottom line here is you can delegate the reporting of these cases, but if it doesn't happen, it is your responsibility. Physicians are the mandated reporters in all states, and all you need is a reasonable suspicion. They point out in California, if two physicians suspect abuse, only one need report. Well, the... uh each state has has minor differences in this, but all 50 states have mandatory, and, it, and here's the term, it's mandatory that you report suspicion of child abuse or neglect. In all 50 states, if it is done in good faith, the physician, or by the way, in, at least referring to Michigan, nurses, dentists, social workers, teachers... All of them have an obligation to report reasonable suspicion, and you cannot go back after them 
civilly or criminally uh, based on turning in that report. Even if they're wrong, they did it in good faith for the protection of the child. So the state has come down on the side of protecting the child as opposed to protecting the reputation of the uh, supposed abuser. Gotcha. Um, We got a paper here that um, is entitled, check this title out, The Advance of the Retail Health Clinic Market, the Liability Risk Physicians May Potentially Face When Supervising or Collaborating with Other Professionals. Now, although this is focused on the retail market, you know, the Walmarts and where there's nurse practitioners. Right. There's a lot of this that relates to emergency medicine. Yeah, but wait a second. Hold the phone. This has to do with people who are supposedly being supervised by doctors. Yes, I've heard that concept before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it happens in the ER, I think. Yeah, Please. yes, it, yeah. Well, it just just as an aside as we carry on this discussion, at the meetings in, uh, in San Francisco last uh, October, the ASAP meeting, the people from California Emergency Physicians, a fine, upstanding group, which we both know all the people and uh, very good folks, admitted that 40% of their patients were seen by the PAs, 40%. Now, as a follow-up to that, um, in some uh, meetings with people from CMS, everybody knows that number, and what they want to know is, why isn't it 60 or 80%? Because they all want to find a way now to cut down the, uh, the, the cost of health care. Be very careful what, what, what we do and what we pound our chest about. Because we're about to find it shoved up our nose. Well, a couple of things. I think that uh, the devil is in the details. When we uh, had our PAs and NPs, they could see anybody in the department. So you could technically say everybody in our department was seen by a mid-level. But then there's other groups where they segregate out the patients who are going to be seen by mid-levels. So I think there's two philosophies about how that works. The other thing is is that should you want to get a copy of this paper, I think that every doctor who is in charge of um, supervising a mid-level, whether it be a nurse practitioner or physician assistant, ought to get this paper. It's in Mayo Clinic Proceedings, the November 2011 issue. And because um, I think we have a substantial concern now about the liabilities of supervision. And Greg, you're seeing more and more cases where failure to adequately supervise is the crooks of the problem. Rick, the plaintiff's attorneys all know about this. They're all beating the drum. The first question is, doctor, is that your signature? Next question. They billed under your provider number. Uh, You billed, you charged the 100%. That means you provided some care to this patient. You were involved. And... If, uh, if you're the guy who's involved, you got to sit there and take the crap when, when things happen. I had a doctor recently in deposition who felt very maligned and said, well, you can't blame me. Uh, I can't see all these cases. And the plaintiff's counsel was, but you seem to be able to bill for all these cases. And just said, show me here where you gave the patient a discount because you didn't really provide any service this this is and by the way this in front of a jury 
you know, these days you pick 12 people from the voters' rolls. Most of those people have seen their health care costs go up. They've seen layoffs in their jobs. They've seen the effect of a runaway health care system. And if they can punish you, doctor, for, uh, for taking this, uh, you know, taking this money, don't you think they will? In fact, one of the depositions I did listen to, the plaintiff's counsel actually asked, they said, doctor, uh, how much has your income gone down in the last five years? And then the next question is, you realize that the industrial workers in this area have seen a 35% decrease and a 25% increase in what they pay as far as the co-pays. That sort of stuff is inflammatory in front of a jury. Um, I I, I will move one step further and say, we as organized medicine beat a drum, organized emergency medicine, beat a drum since 1968. Emergency care is best delivered by properly trained and credentialed emergency physicians. And it's funny how we've sort of fallen away from that. And no one in organized medicine wants to take a stand, define what should be supervised, what should be seen. I mean, we can all agree that stitches can probably be taken out by someone other than a doctor. Uh, What about sudden onset of headache? Doctor get involved in those? What about a second visit to the emergency department that night? Should a doctor get involved in those? What about an against medical advice case? I mean, there's all of these things where if we're not going to do it, why do you need a doctor at all? Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So this is a, a, a tough matter. One of the things is, if I could clarify, if you bill 100% of Medicare, the physician, my understanding is, has to see the patient, make a note, they have to collaborate uh, in this case. If you don't do that and it's a PA and, and you never saw the patient kind of thing, my understanding is that's the 85%. Rick, there are more people arguing this out than you can ever imagine. A lot of billers have taken the position that the offline, the 85% charge, would be sort of if... if uh, if uh, they're working in the clinic and you're at home, that sort of thing, you have they have the ability to call you kind of thing. And they will take the position that everybody's seen by the PA, while the physician is actually in the department, can be billed, be billed at the 100% level. For those of, for those of you who are listening and, and don't quite understand the difference of uh, billing with regard to supervision, understand this. If you are... In an established residency program, you don't have a choice. You have to lay eyes and hands on every person who is billed. No choice here. Uh, That was originally passed in 1969. We ignored it. All of us were in training programs that were totally ignored. And then in 1996, the feds restated the case and went after physicians who were not actually supervising resident care, and that's because if you bill under Part B Medicare, what you've said is you've provided the patient a service. If they use your billing number, you better have provided the service and not the residents. The problem is with PAs uh, and, and other mid-levels is that it is not clear around the country. There's no uniform standard. 
I, I don't think our professional society, and I guess I should say societies, have any choice but to start getting involved in this issue because it has become, it has become like a free lunch for plaintiffs' counsels, and we need to do something about it. Well, let's get back to this paper a little bit. Now, most of the people who work in these um, quickie retail clinics are nurse practitioners. So this paper really focuses on nurse practitioners. And it makes the point that some states require nurse practitioners to have a physician supervision or collaboration or some kind of mutual agreement establishing the relationship. And they usually have about six or seven consistent points about what's supposed to be do, be done, the policies and procedures, clinical coverage requirements for both the NP and the physician, if there's nobody there, practice guidelines and reviews of outcomes, methods of quality assurance, scope of collaboration and supervision, situations requiring immediate co- communication with the physicians, just like you mentioned, record keeping on a periodic review and periodic visits to the practice site. Rick, I will tell you this right now. I don't think 5% of those places are doing all of those things. I would bet you real money that we can walk in and none of it's being done. Well, that's interesting because this uh, document says these are the usual requirements. One insurer, however, as noted in this paper, reports a recent spike in NP-related claims. Now, they don't know whether that's because there's a lot more NPs working out there or, in fact, the claims are going up uh, disproportionately. Suits against physicians in this environment, number one, failure to meet the supervision or collaboration standards that I just listed. Right. Number two, and this is the one that is the real bear, and this entire paper from here on in gets into vicarious liability under the respondent superior concept, Greg. Yes, that is, for those of you whose Latin is uh, long back in high school, it is let the master answer. Uh, That means if someone is in control, they're in charge. If If something happens to you at Henry Ford Hospital, Uh, The doctors are employees. They're direct employees of the hospital. The hospital can't disavow themselves of them. They, They were dumb enough to hire them, so they have to bear the responsibility along with the doctor. So respondeat superior is a concept which, you know, medicine is a, a little flea on the side of this. This has to do with people who work for General Motors. This has to people who work for the Tasty Bread Company. If a guy delivering bread in the Tasty Bread truck runs some kid down uh, with his vehicle during, during his work operation, he, the Tasty Bread Company also stands liable for the activity. So the action is not just against John Smith, Tasty Bread Truck driver. It's against the Tasty Bread Company. One of the things that they bring up as a key concept is, um, the issue is how much control and responsibility you have is um, the right to control the NP or PA by the supervising physician is uh, the, the core concept, and some say that the supervision and collaboration agreements that you sign de facto establish this relationship. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And again, as a conservative doctor-supporting guy, the plaintiffs aren't wrong on this. 
if you stand to profit financially, there's a reason why there's PAs working. Why? Because it is financially profitable to the group. I want to see the emergency physician who stands there with his hand to God and says, no, we, we, there's no financial benefit for having these people. Crap. Total crap. And, and uh, believe me, when they have to say it in court, uh, good plaintiffs' counsels know how to bring that out and make it look like you're ripping off the public by supplying lesser health care than you've actually charged for. This issue is not going to go away. By the way, PA, the last time I looked, stood for physician assistant. That doesn't mean it's a physician, because then they'd be called physician. It's physician assistant. People don't know what they're getting. And uh, you and I have spoken offline about the problem now with... uh, nurse practitioners who gets PhDs, uh, what's the confusion there? Does the patient think they're being seen by a doctor? By that, I mean a medical doctor. I don't think the public understands the subtleties of who's walking in that room. If they've got a white coat on and a name tag, they're going to assume it's doctor so-and-so unless stated otherwise. Right. Uh, I've heard a couple of states are trying to legislate what nurse practitioners who have PhDs can say in, in terms of their introduction to patients. I mean, you, it may come down to be, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm a nurse practitioner. Yes. And the other thing is, what's the PhD in? Is it primal scream masturbation? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, you're going to get a lot of positive remarks about that. Well, but the point is... I don't know what that Ph.D. is in. And if, if, that, if you think that by getting a Ph.D., that gives them a greater knowledge base to, you know, to practice medicine as doctor so-and-so, then the entire concept of sending people to medical school is a hoax. How do you feel about it, Greg? I, I, sorry to get, get into this, but at some point in time, all I'm saying is this medical legal quagmire is not going to go away. And and we need to force the professional societies to debate it, to talk about it, to decide what supervision really means because otherwise you might as you know they're licking their lips out there in the plaintiff's bar to go after guys on this. And by the way, having sat at enough and prepared enough people for deposition, uh, uh let me just tell you, the plaintiff when he comes to that PA and says, "Well, PA so-and-so, which cases were you supposed to take to the doctor? Uh, Did this meet the criteria? Show me the criteria sheet from your department, what must be presented to the physician. And as soon as they say, well, it's sort of our judgment we don't have one, it's all over. Because what they're going to say is, well, couldn't you have had one? Is there a reason why this third visit wasn't presented to the doctor? I'll tell you, these these are ugly these are ugly situations, and I get to see more of them than I'd like. I promise you. Greg, um, do you want to start into some letters, or do you have something else that you want to throw in here? Well, who do we have for letters here? We've got uh, Julian Kadish, Milford Regional Medical Center in Milford, Massachusetts. He wrote a grumpy note. Yes, he did. 
He even said it was a grumpy note. Well, he says that. He's a grumpy note. That's okay. We're grumpy guys. We can deal with this. He says at times uh, we say stuff that makes his blood boil or feel like his head is going to explode Greg, or both. We have not had a head explode in at least six to eight months. I, it's at least that much. Yeah. Come on. Uh, yeah, I know. Don't I know. Make, what was that guy chasing don't overstate you? it. The guy chasing you with the gun, but that's different. That had to do with his wife. All right, what's he, yeah. what's he complaining about It here? usually centers on our negative comments about emergency, uh, uh, electronic medical records. Would we say something bad about an electronic oh, God, record? No. Oh, no. Uh, they've been using some sort of electronic something or other since 1990. If you want to take that argument, yes, I've been dictating, you know, free dictation on records for years. I agree with that. I don't think we have to go back to hammers and chisels. The cuneiform system of writing was good for the Phoenicians. It's not necessarily good for us. Most doctor handwriting isn't even writing at all. But wait a minute. That's electronic, and it doesn't do some of the the damnedest, awfulest things that some of these electronic systems do. He claims he is completely cynical about the actual value of the EMR as it relates to the practice of medicine. Can you agree with that, Rick? I think I would. Yeah. He says that his EMR uh, facilitates the documentation of clinically non-essential, irrelevant parts of the record, the stuff uh, that CMS is now uh, using for billing. And so I don't think anybody doubts that the ability to bill to code higher charts uh, is probably helped by 10,000 different facts. But that's the quantity versus quality view of healthcare. Yeah, instead of seeing 2.2 patients an hour or 2.5, you're going to be seeing 1.8. But you can over you can raise the bill up. Like the ER bills are not high enough as they are. In the LA Times, I think I mentioned this last time, but stop me. There was a story, uh, second page, $5,000 bill for a little girl's tummy ache. Uh, they did an ultrasound, maybe some blood tests. That was it. Dad had lost his job and bought some high um, deductible insurance. And oddly enough, the deductible was 5000 And they said, thank you very much. So this little girl, and they detailed the ridiculous charges it was $1,200 to walk in the door of this place and all of the charges that were associated with this visit. It was it was an embarrassment for emergency medicine, and it was by no means an exception. Oh, my God. $1,200 to walk in the door? In the door. We're close to Bourbon Street. I can walk <laughs> in the door cheaper than that. And for $1,200, I can leave happy. I can leave happy. Yeah. You know, life's not fair, Rick. It shouldn't cost $1,200 to walk in the door. Bambi's mother should not have died. And after five drinks, lap dances ought to be complimentary. By God, this country needs to improve. (laughs) Go ahead. Anyway, Julian concludes that the EMR is essential if we want to limit the chances of people finding an excuse not to pass. Now, Now, Julian, what... Would, have we said in the past, which would cause you to have your head explode when we kind of basically agree that, you know, on this stuff, we're not we're not arguing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not we're not disagreeing with that. We've gone in that direction. I just think that we became cows on this. We went to the slaughter without talking about what we really need to collect to give the patients better care. 
the entire system of the way we bill and code this game is ridiculous. It needs to stop. But you know what? Nobody's going to listen to me, are they, Rick? No, no. they're not. Yeah, okay. Uh, Bill Sheeg. Yeah. New River Medical Center in Montecito, Monticello, uh, Minnesota, took some issue with us when we did the uh, case with uh, Mike Weinstock. Um, Mike Weinstock is a is a uh, you know great guy. What was the problem with that? So he, you know, it, it, it's really hard to do these cases. He said he's complaining that regarding the the PE case, he thought we jumped to the gun, making the diagnosis. You know, it's really difficult to do these because we know that they're risk management cases and somebody screwed up. So you're you're really attuned. And so he took some exception at, at that regarding the case. I love this one. The case of the facial stapling. Remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, of the intoxicated driver. He agrees that follow-up doctors in general shouldn't make negative comments regarding previous care. But he thought this was egregious. Staples in the face. Uh, yeah, think, that's, uh, so. yeah, that's that's a, that's so a little he strange. he didn't like one, and I think he was okay with us on the other. Are we going to get Mike back on this? Uh... Yeah, actually, uh, we're slated in, I think, two months. Um, I think two months. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Johnson liked the profile of the New Zealand no-fault system and was interested in how other countries deal with medical misadventures. He notes in Canada they have a single insurer who fights non-meritorious claims vigorously and that doing so will limit their costs in the long run. That's good. Yeah. He likes some focus on transfers and the associated risks because in Canada they have to send them halfway across the continent, apparently, to, uh, for transfers. They're yeah, that's called next door in Canada. Canada's but, big, Rick. He says Canada transfers can be long and difficult to arrange, and consultants often have little appreciation of the limited capabilities of small community hospitals. My sense is, uh, um, Aaron, you got to get the hell out of there. Yeah, no, you, you come know, on, the come on. The country's not getting any smaller, and transfers are always risky because especially when you have transfers that involve long distances long times god knows what's going to happen in the helicopter or the ambulance on the way it's not likely you're going to be able to stop and fix something that on the road and so it's the nature of the business this is called darwinian um this is Darwinian. If you want to live in the middle of nowhere, you got to take these chances. Yeah, it's pruning. It's pruning. Those of greater intelligence live closer to better health care, right? Uh, let's let's look at, at a couple of questions, though, with the Canadian system. It is set up on a on a provincial basis. That is, despite what they th- they say in the United States, there is no Canadian health plan. It's the Ontario health plan or the Quebec health plan. It's absolutely set up just like we would do it on a california plan or a montana plan that's how it's set up um the canadians are have been very good about not letting contingency law take place that is their attorneys do not get a third or 40 percent of the win they bill for time spent and they cannot get the big win i think the reason the canadians have been better off than us in a lot of these med legal issues is simply because of that. There's no huge, you know, two million or three million dollar uh, part of the award that goes to any of these guys. They've done pretty well. As far as transfers go, I think that that logic still has to prevail. 
in small hospitals in Upper Canada, and I grew up on the Canadian border. Let me let me just tell you, I understand the problem, but but uh, I think that most people recognize if you live in upper and outer areas, uh, there are going to be these problems in transfer. There are going to be those problems. Well, you also mentioned a wine, Greg, for you. Um, oh, my God. I don't know. How to pronounce that, will you, Chief? Uh, uh, Grey Monk Pinot Hoxier. <laughs> uh, the 2009 is great, and the 2010, good. Thank you very much. And, you know, Rick, when I, again, when I'm out touring around doing things, people want to fight more about the wine of the month selections than anything we said about risk management. Ked, who, who else wrote to us? Uh, I got one. I think that this is supposed to be remain anonymous. Okay. I'm not sure, but it's the safest thing to do. It is. A six-year-old woman presents by cab, very sick, with a clear-cut surgical abdomen and a bunch of nasty labs, including a sodium of 117. Uh Uh-oh. One doctor goes off shift and on returning looks up uh, on the computer to see uh, where the patient was admitted and see how she's doing. Very nice of that doctor. Uh, Turns out uh, she signed herself out. She was not in the computer. Twelve hours later, she winds up in another hospital not doing well. Yeah. Now it gets into the battle of the, of the notes. The surgical resident who signed her out documented well his conversation and her adamant refusal to stay. She felt better with IVs and such. She was also seen by a social worker. I don't know that I'll top it. Yeah, that's the that's the height of of uh, science. Okay. The doctor asserts that he would have used every trick in the book including giving her sedatives and more pain meds to get her to stay because she was so obviously sick. He asserts that de facto, patients who are so sick and such uh, biochemical derangements do not have the capacity to understand, here we go, Greg, and to refuse care, and in fact, reform refusal did not occur. This, This, I think, is a contestable point you cannot say that because somebody has a 117 sodium they are incapable of making rational decisions rick there's a way to know that talk examine the patient talk to them he would like to say i am declaring you unable to make a decision because your lab work is screwed up no you can't do it on that right you can't do it on that the first (laughs) the lab work could be wrong but you know what let's say the lab work was right and they were still talking gibberish even normal lab work, uh, be damned, put it aside. It's how the patient looks, carry on conversation. You know, we've talked so many times on this program about here's the five points of against medical advice. Here's what really makes me upset about this. Why is a resident dealing with an against medical advice case without bringing in the attending? Well, I don't know. That there's any residents in this case. Well, didn't didn't he comment on oh, that? Oh, the surgical. Okay. The surgical okay. resident is the one who declared her. Well, you're not that sick, uh, and somehow she got away. I don't know why there isn't a, an attending note on this case. Uh, for those who who don't believe it, uh, I will reiterate it. As far as I'm concerned, the against medical advice patient, the informed refusal <laughs> patient is your final exam in medicine. And sure as hell, that case is going to come back to you and somebody's going to be unhappy. And by the way, now that they went to another hospital, 
the chances that hospital are going to be charitable to you are what? Slim and none. Because people make comments. You mean you were at that hospital, you know, 12 hours ago and they didn't admit you? Well, that's, that's outrageous. So he concludes, how far do we go in the document, documentational process to defend informed refusal? And if we are not super fully confident, do we involuntarily treat? Gray zone, it's a decision, a professional decision that you make with regarding the competence of the person. Two-part two part question. Number one, how do we document this? And it's the way we've talked about. Number one, do their capacity. Ask them questions. Get involved. Make sure that the mental status is such that it's the kind of person, if it was your brother, you would let them go. Number two, you've got to document somewhere on there that you have given them a diagnosis in a language they can understand and the consequences of the action. Number three, are there any reasonable alternatives? Number four, is there family we can talk to? Are they there? Can they get involved? Can we make a phone call? Do you have a family doc we can call? And, and, and lastly, you, you document what we just talked about and have, some, have other people a nurse, a tech, or whatever it is, who also heard the discussion, put this stuff down. And finally, when in doubt, act. So so if you think that there's a possibility that the mental status is off, just restrain them. After all, what are they going to sue you for if things go well? Wrongful life? And I'll tell you, if they die, the family's going to take this argument they didn't have reasonable capacity, uh, and so you let them out with, with, with altered mental status of some kind where you should have retained the patient, doctor. Well, David wants to take the position just the opposite, that I can uh, hold a person because uh, of biomedical uh, derangements. He specifically asks, are there medical conditions that just by their presence alone Make informed refusal impossible. Well, alcohol, I, drugs, electrolyte imbalance, neurologic illness. Well, neurologic illness should be reflected in the examination. See, the problem is we use too loose a mental status exam. You say, well, he's sort of awake, kind of alert. Ask him, how many nickels are there in a dollar and 35 cents? If you can't answer that question, eh, put him down. Uh, there's lots of, of refinements to the neuro exam, which we don't do anymore because we think a CT scan will solve everything. And I, and I certainly think that if you want to find an abnormality, you'll find an abnormality and, uh, and, and document it. I think we got one more left here, Greg. Okay. This doctor definitely needs to be anonymous. Oh, he, well, uh, <laughs> he's a double anonymous. <laughs> double anonymous, yes, yes, I noticed that. He has um, some issues regarding the uh, medical staff. Uh, what if a patient needs a rapid consult and the consultant takes forever to call back? Yeah. Uh, well, basically, and he's kind of of the view that uh, going up the ladder is a problem, but frankly, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed yeah. to call the chief of the service. If the chief of the service... You know, first of all, every doctor in the medical staff has an alternate. So you call the alternate. 
alternate uh, is is uh, gone, not around, then you call the chief of service. Chief of service is not around, you call the chief of staff. And it doesn't matter whether it's 4 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock. This fellow kind of thinks that after our call, they're they're not going to like it. And we don't care whether they like it. This is the protocol. You follow the protocol. Um, Well, but he was, in all fairness, this this august gentleman was – a little bit unhappy with the discussion we had with Michael Kessler. Oh no, no, no! Wait, I think that was that was the previous. Oh, okay. Guy. That was right. David. Uh, David did. He, he thought we did. No, Doc. Uh, Michael Kessler was the plaintiff attorney that we interviewed um, on Maui on Maui a couple months ago, and we've had a, sup- a couple of people thought that that was a softball interview and we had to kind of defend it as a softball interview. Yeah. And my position on this was we're not there to argue with the guy. We're there to, you know, find out his point of view and, you know, we're not going to change his mind. And I think that he was a gentleman was very f- nice with his time, spent it with us. He also participated in the conference where you could hear a pin drop when he was on the panel with us. Yeah. And so I don't feel that I need to defend not taking this guy to the mat. Well, I, I think that one thing one needs to realize is that the great plaintiff's attorneys, and he is one of the great plaintiff's attorneys, you know, in case you haven't seen his home on Maui, uh, uh, they do weave a certain spell. And if you listen to him, certain things he said sounded right now. Is all of it correct? No. No, absolutely. No. It, would he lie, cheat, steal, and, and take your wallet? Of course. The point is, I think it's good for our listeners to hear their mindset. Absolutely. And the way they weave their magic, uh, because they, they weave a, a field of dreams for 12 people who have to decide what really is the standard of care. And what most IR docs don't realize is that courtroom on every case is its own reality. It doesn't have to have any reference to the truth, to what is reasonable. It doesn't have to talk about the fact that you had to see 12 patients in the last two hours. They don't have to deal with any of that stuff, Rick. You know, one of the things, there were definitely concepts that he espoused that were, um, gave, give you a little, sh- sh- you know, it was, it was just wrong. Well, he, can't you do some tests? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't you understand the diagnostic process? Process, doctor. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, um, there, there was some stuff, but I think the majority of the interview allowed him to express his point of view, whether you like it or not. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and and we understand that 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 uh, that Mike is a is is a charmer. Uh, he's a very interesting guy. I know you don't like some of the things he had to say, and just suck it up and get used to it because you're going to hear it when you go to court. That's all right. Let's it. go back to anonymous who's oh, got yeah. all kinds of problem with the medical staff. Number two, what if the consultant is on call and thinks a consultation is not needed despite the request of the emergency physician? The consultant has seen the patient in the past. The primary care physician is requesting the consultant, and the family is requesting the consultant. This guy has dug in, and now the, 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 the family knows him. The 
primary care doctor knows him. The ER physician is requesting this physician consultant, and this guy is not budging. Well, here's the bottom line is, as it is in all of our cases, what would you do if, if the patient was somebody you cared about? Let's say it's your Uncle Fred. Your uncle, I, don't like, I don't like Uncle Fred. You know, well, okay. I, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, and don't use my wife as the example. But the let's say it's somebody I loved and cared about. And so what we'd have to do then is say, is, is say to the guy, listen, you're the consultant they want. Don't make me have to put it down on the chart that you refuse to come in. Don't make me have to call the chief of staff. Don't make me have to bring this up as an issue at executive committee. I know you and I have a difference of opinion at this moment, but help me out. They want, they want this. They think you're a smart guy and you have things to offer here. I think Although you're a smart guy. Although we know differently. What? Although we know differently. Well, whatever <laughs> Greg, it is. you're making me cry. You're doing such a great job Yeah, here. but the bottom the line. The tears right? are welling up in my eyes. And they should, sir. The guilt that you're <laughs> making this fellow. Actually, and the other thing is this guy's on call. So there's the whole Impala thing as well. Exactly. The bottom line, you know who really needs to be involved in this? And uh, things changed at my hospital. Once there's an administrator on call, you can call them and say, you know what? This is what's happening in your hospital, which you're responsible for. Oh, now it's my hospital. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Mr. Administrator or Miss Administrator, I guess half the time it was a miss who was on the phone. And also say, before you talk to this doc, why don't you speak to hospital counsel who's on call? Because I'm going to have to put this down on the chart. Why? Because it's the truth. Either run your shop or we're going to have trouble. Well, it's not your call. Mtala requires you to put down this doctor's <laughs> Well, but see, refusal. that's the point. It's not that I get a choice. In fact, if you look at the form, which appeared in the, in the congressional record, uh, you know, they laid the whole thing out. Everybody's form in the United States has to have certain elements on it. And one of them is you got to turn the guy's name in to the to to the Michigan. Well, in my case, it would be the Michigan Department of Health and the phone number and all those other sorts of things. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, what you have just laid out here, Rick, is a formula for disaster. They if something goes wrong with that patient. Whose butt's on the line? If you as the doc walk in and say, well, this guy doesn't think he needs to come in, then you've acquiesced to this. Well, that's, so that's his next point. What do you tell the family when we have previously um, said we're not supposed to criticize the work of others? Mm-hmm. What do you tell the family when this consultant doesn't want to come in even though he has been specifically requested by the family, he has seen the patient in the past, how do you kind of cover this for the, for the specialist? Well, but the that's family what, want to say, hey, what, where, what's, 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 where's Dr. Jones? That's why I want this discussion with uh, the doc who's, who, who's being called in. I want to get a chance to beg him. I want to be able to talk to his department chief. I want to be able to talk to the chief of staff, the administrator on call, long before I ever talk to the family, because I agree, the last place I'm going to plead my case is in front of the family and the patient. That Nobody wins in that, Rick. Nobody. 
Because if something does go go wrong, what are they going to say? Well, even Dr. Henry couldn't get him to come in, and he said he should have come in. You know what? Let, let's grow up. Let's get away from that. I don't think anybody does anybody else any good with that. By the way, in all my years of doing this, I never had this situation. Because, you know, I'll paint the picture on the phone the way I need it painted. And if they're not coming in, I'm going to have the the administrator of the hospital put the hurt on them to come in. Well, Greg, actually, I th- I think that you, what your approach to this is ex- extraordinary and exceptional by taking the point of view that you're going to do everything that you can in your power in terms of all of these options before you go to the family and say, Dr. So-and-so isn't coming in. And that addresses the question of this, this, this doc. How do you protect this jerk who is not coming in? And you've just outlined it perfectly. Right. The well, last <laughs> people who are going to hear about this is when there's been a failure of the entire chain of dealing with this. And I think if you walk into a pa- uh, family, and patient in the family, and somehow admit that you're incapable of getting things going, don't think for one second that they're just going to have anger at that consultant. You're sitting there, too. You were there. You could have saved Grandpa. By the way, um, this, isn't, this isn't like the bars. You know, the bars here in New Orleans, come 4 o'clock in the morning, you do have to go home. You never actually have to go home from the emergency department. And you can keep them around. Have I done that a couple times? Oh, yes. sure. You yeah. know, by the light of day, things seem to get better. <laughs> yeah, they always do. They the always sun do. comes up and yeah. all's right with the world. Yep, that, that's exactly what happens. Uh, all's right with the world. And things are clearer in the daylight. You can see. Well, you, you know, I think that I think weirdness and funkiness and orneriness grow in the dark. I'm weirder and funkier at night. They don't even let me walk around here in New Orleans at night. I mean, I understand all that. The problem is, if this guy has any respect for you, this consultant, you can usually stop this by saying, listen, I know this isn't good. I know you don't like it. Do me a favor. Help me out. I've helped you out plenty of times. I've taken care of a lot of your patients done a lot of stuff so you didn't have to come in this one i'm calling my i'm calling my chits in on this on this one guy do it i don't know how they can turn you down with that kind of approach the other thing is as you're experienced in a in a hospital uh you've seen everybody's dirty laundry over the years you've seen the cases they've sent home you know they thought was gird what are you going to say? Remember the case you sent home, uh, <laughs> yeah, Right, right, right. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of that one we had. Remember you sent him home and then he arrested? What the hell? This is a lot like that case. It, last, yeah. last point here. Yeah. Explain how to handle the situation in real time, even if 2 a.m. on a Sunday. And honest to goodness, I don't think it makes one bit of difference. Uh, um, and I, I think reading um, this fellow's um, email, it makes it pretty clear to me that his medical staff um, runs runs the show, and um, they don't necessarily have very much respect for the emergency department yeah. uh, crew. And this is 
medical staff's a la 1970. This is not the way it is in most hospitals now. No. No. So th- these people basically need a little kick in the butt in terms of what their responsibilities are, what their EMTALA obligations are. Yeah. I mean, to turn down a, a case where the family asks you to see a person and the family physician asks you to see a person, it's, that's extraordinarily ballsy. Now, that's a dysfunctional physician. And at some point in time, that's going to be, have to be dealt with at executive committee. You know, let me tell you what helped emergency medicine more than anything else since, you know, you and I were practicing five, six years before there was a board to take. You remember that? Yes, there was. Uh, and in all fairness, a lot of the people working in emergency medicine of that day, there were people who... Uh, you know, perverts, misfits, people who couldn't get a job doing anything else, alcoholics and drug abusers. Uh, <laughs> and, and those are the ones that weren't pedophiles. So uh, I understand why there was this negative feeling. But the nice thing that's happened is we're now turning out the best and the brightest. Our residencies get great people. Uh, and they, you know, they, they're raised with the internal medicine docs, the peds. They all recognize these are real doctors down in the emergency department who have something to offer the patients in the care. And uh, you're right. What, what we've just hear, heard is a description of 1968 medicine. I'm kind of hoping in most places in, in the enlightened world, uh, that's not happening much anymore. Greg, we are almost... Out of time. You want to tell me some wine stuff? You or want do, wine? You, you want wine? Yeah, I want okay. wine. We, we, we can do wine. Um, or we could do uh, the beer, the local beer. What is that? Libido? Libido beer. No, that's a bita. <laughs> uh, same thing. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of that <laughs> wine, by the way, Rick? No, actually, I just had, a, had one of those to help lubricate my... Uh, performance <laughs> yeah, yes 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 uh, that, oh, that is true uh, uh, wine of the month this month we are we are going to um, I've been very loyal I've been pro-american for a lot of months now I want to I want to head back to uh, and help out our friends in Australia uh, because everybody has been drinking Australian wines for years at the low end of the spectrum they really have some rot gut there's no uh, question about it, you know, yellowtail, that sort of thing. And at the upper end of the spectrum, they've got fantastic wines. And and really, even their bulk wines at the upper end, you know, uh, are just are just terrific. But I want to pass on two that have just been reviewed and are considered knockout wines for reasonable prices. I, I think you and I have been overly influenced by Mel Herbert here that he, he wants everything you know, cheap and, and, and bountiful, so to speak. But there are two good ones which I, I want to point out. And there is a, there's a wine <clears throat> distrib- the winemaker by the name of Logan. And uh, Logan makes uh, several good wines. One of them is a, uh, is a, a Wimala Shiraz. And Shiraz is the principal grape of Australia. That's their best. It's the equivalent of a Merlot here in the United States. Uh, but their Shiraz is terrific. It's from the central ranges of uh, Australia, and it's 16 bucks a bottle here in the U.S., 16 bucks. That's not bad, Rick. That, that's, that's a good buy. The other one to think about is the same uh, outfit, Logan, has gone into whites. 
Um, they're, they're, they're moving up rapidly, and they now make the uh, Wimala uh, Pinot Gris, um, uh, which is, is considered, at least by the reviewers at Parker, to be a, uh, a near 90 wine. And for, 60, again, $16 a bottle, I'd try these two. And uh, your local wine distributor can pretty much find these things. You can go online uh, and get them. And I think that you'll be pleasantly surprised, uh, particularly the fact that the Australians had not been known by their, for their whites before. And their Pinot Gris now, I think, competes with the best in the world. Well, there you go. Um, listen, can I encourage you folks to send us some letters, comments, emails? We uh, always look forward to them. And I, I must admit, when we get these things, we answer them post hoc. Usually the day we get them, not necessarily that we give the right answer. And then we, and then we bring them back up on the, uh, on the uh, recordings only if you give us your permission. It's exactly right. We invariably ask you, can we quote you? Because I get, pl- you know, apps for all, I get hate mail that we don't necessarily include. But besides those who, who hate my wines... Uh, we do get lots of good questions, and uh, we're in a service industry, Rick. That's right. We, we, ought, we ought to give a service, by God. That would be a good thing to do. Okay, so that is the uh, May issue of Risk Management Monthly. Gregory, thanks very much for doing it here with me. I know it's a little unusual spot, but it's kind of fun to do it here, actually. Oh, my God. And, and if, if there's ever a place that is unique in the country, it still is New Orleans. The fact that, the, that Katrina spared... Uh, it didn't spare all of the city, and that's sad, but there was enough of it here. And I would point out, Rick, that uh, you were one of the first groups in, in EMA to be back in the city right after Katrina. Uh, we didn't have a huge number of people in, in that year, but we kept it going, and um, I think I think we did the right thing. We have a very loyal following who comes to this course every year, nice people who like the Jazz Fest, who come for the... They actually attend the course, too. Oh, absolutely they attend the course. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye for now. We'll talk with you next month. So long.